Hello, and welcome to Building Sustainability Podcast. I'm your host, Jeffrey Hart, aka Jeffrey the Natural Builder. Building sustainability consists of conversations with designers, builders, makers, dreamers, and doers, exploring the wide world of sustainability in the built environment by talking to wonderful people who are doing excellent things. Hello and welcome. This is episode 52 of the Building Sustainability Podcast. First of all, I want to say a massive thank you to Philippa and Talene. Uh, they have concluded their three-part mini-series in the, the Bite Size episodes, talking all about their work as sustainable architects and consultants, uh, how they got into it, how they found their perfect jobs and how they created that sustainability role. And also a little bit on how they stayed sane doing it, because it's very, very difficult to uh, to think about anything else once you really realise how important the work they're doing is. So thank you so much to uh, to both of you for that. What else is going on? Uh, it's competition time. I've got a whole load of prizes for you to win for anyone that subscribes to the Building Sustainability Patreon page. That's patreon.com forward slash building sustainability. Uh, I get a lot of messages from people saying, oh, I've meant to become a Patreon for ages and I've only just managed now. Um, so maybe this is the excuse you need because there is a load of sweet prizes. Those prizes are John Mullaney, expert shrink pot maker and incredible artist. He has given three shrink pots, one big one and two small ones. They're very, very cute. I should say pictures of all the prizes are on Instagram, at the Building Sustainability Podcast account or Jeffrey the Natural Builder. If you're not on Instagram, Facebook, Jeffrey the Natural Builder. Who else? Dave Cockcroft. So Dave Cockcroft has given two spoons, two lovely, lovely eating spoons. Uh, they feel so good in the hand. Isla Middleton has given a, a poster, a print poster of a summer foraging. Very, very beautiful thing. Uh, lino cut, I believe. And then finally, Jeff Hannis uh, has given a bowl, a beautiful field maple bowl. Can you hear the Tweety birds? Very nice, aren't they? Yes, so it's a whole big treen prize kit. Yeah, it's all about nature. Biophilia. I haven't stopped talking about that yet. Yeah, it's going to make you happy. So get on it. So how do you enter? You First of all, this is only open for July 2021. If you're listening in the future, then I'm afraid you have missed your chance. Yeah, so just become a Patreon supporter uh, for any amount. And yeah, you're in, in with a chance. So new supporters on the Patreon since the last episode, just Matt Stonely this week. Matt is actually uh, an old uni friend of mine um, who has been listening to the podcast from the beginning. So thank you very much, Matt. I am going to leave all of the, the July uh, entrants until uh, I do the prize draw. So I'll name them all in one big go in an episode uh, at the end of July. Um, I feel really bad. I mean, especially bad for Matt. Sorry, Matt. But all the existing supporters... Uh, I feel bad that you're not getting to be part of this uh, this prize draw. So what I've done is I have commissioned a stunning bowl by a friend of the podcast, Flo Hamer. Anyone that's already a supporter, you are in with a chance of winning that. And if you want to go in for the big prize draw, then you can increase your existing support by a small amount. Uh, but no stress. It's up to you. As always, uh, if you go for the higher tier, then you get a hand-carved wooden spoon from me. So uh, you can win in all sorts of ways. 
of course, on there you get all the bonus audio, um, all the little extra bits that don't quite make it into the, the finished podcast. Currently, that stands at eight and a half hours. Uh, and there is about half an hour from Sid uh, from this episode. Um, obviously, you don't have to support the podcast financially. Any sharing of the uh, the episodes is massively appreciated. Uh, do try and tag in uh, Jeffrey the Natural Builder or Building Sustainability Podcast. And so, yeah, we love to see it getting spread around. Okay, other news. Uh, those who enjoyed the Nick Hayes episode, uh, there is an event happening on the 24th of July 2021 uh, on the Sussex Downs. There's talks and a picnic and... Lots of interesting stuff going on about land rights and ecology. So get yourself down to there. I'll be there. I think there's a few other building sustainability guests who are going to be there. So come down and, and meet those. What else? Uh, earth floors. I've got a couple of earth floors going in in the next few weeks, which is good news. Always good news to get more earth floors down. Happily, these two are in, I think one's a 1970s house. There's a little extension going on the back. So that's really good to be diversifying the range of houses that earth floors are being in. And the other one is super exciting. It's a brand new house from one of the big volume house builders. And the client has chosen to put an earth floor in the kitchen there. So I'm really excited for that interesting place for an earth floor to go. It's not just hippie homes, you know. Um, what else to say? Oh, I guess a, a little tiny house update is that this week I took it all apart because I wanted to make some changes to the base and how it connects to the frame. So, uh, down it came, uh, changes were made and now it is back up standing tall again. Uh, it's all framed up to the ridge. Uh, rain has stopped play today, uh, but tomorrow I will be getting on putting up the rafters. Um, so that's quite exciting. Um, I'm hoping to uh, to get the roof on pretty quickly uh, so that I can stop faffing around with tarps because tarps are boring. Um, exciting stuff too. Uh, I've ordered uh, my cork cladding. Uh, this is a cork insulation board, uh, which is also a facade grade, uh, meaning that it's weatherproof. So it's uh, vapor permeable and all that good stuff. And it's going to be the rain screen on the outside of the building. Um, so my house will look like tree bark. That's nice, isn't it? I've been reading uh, quite a bit into cork because of this process, and I, f I find it just a wonder material. It's from the, the Quercus suba, uh, which is the cork oak. It grows predominantly in sort of southern Europe and northern Africa, um, and the the cork is actually the, the tree's bark, and uh, every nine years it can be harvested without harming the tree. So all the tree roots and uh, associated soil health stay intact and uh, the trees can live for hundreds of years. Um, so I think that makes it an infinite resource. Uh, I've been struggling with the idea of finite and infinite recently, but I'm pretty sure that if it grows on trees, as the saying goes, then it probably is infinite. Anyway, I digress. Let's talk about Sid Hill. Um, so I was really, really pleased to get to chat to Sid. I've been following his work on Instagram for a few years, actually, since I did a show garden. Um, so Sid is an ecological garden designer. The tagline on his website is tending to the land to create beautiful, abundant and thoughtful places. Sounds nice, doesn't it? I'll just read you the, the offering on his website as well. He says creation of ecological gardens and landscapes based on the principles and philosophy of permaculture, tending the land to create beautiful, abundant and thoughtful places for people and wildlife. 
Yes, that's what we need. So Sid is currently roaming the Italian landscape, living in a van, uh, doing lots of biking. And I think he's working on the on the landscape out there. But he's normally found in Cornwall. It was, yeah, really, really great to meet Sid. Uh, I'm looking forward to meeting him in person and welcoming him to uh, to my home here in Exmoor. Uh, I should say that links to all of Sid's social media and websites are all in the show notes. He's got loads of great videos uh, that you should check out. Um, and that's it. That's all I've got to say. He can speak for the rest and tell you his fascinating story of where he's come from and how he's ended up where he is. Okay, enjoy the episode. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promo rate for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. My, my my route into landscape design and landscaping and the sort of regenerative fields is one from permaculture. Um, I was home educated and instead of learning academic subjects, I learned about permaculture. Um, I grew up on a small holding where we grew a lot of our own food, lived off grid, built our house, um, had like really incredible ecological landscapes that were producing food for us so instead of spending my time in a classroom I was out in the landscape learning how to process food building our house and learning really practical skills on how to live and when I um, when I came to an age ready to go to college I um I quickly found out you couldn't do this at college. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I had to try to design my education down a permaculture route, but there was no academic way to study permaculture at college and at university. So instead of studying permaculture, I went into horticulture and landscape design, whereas I've actually, throughout my um well, throughout my life, I've, I've really been interested in the broad subject of sustainable living and regenerative practices. But I, the reason I went down the route of landscape design is because within the field of landscape design, 
I can follow all of these different routes of sustainability that I like because as a designer and, and one of landscape, that includes um, the biological sciences and ecology, um, hydrology, geology, building, um, social sciences, art, soil science. It, it includes so much stuff. So what I found was this was a means I could explore all of these different um, subjects in sustainability and regenerative practices within my work. And there was not really anything else I could find that could encompass all of these different areas I was passionate about. So that, that's, that's really how I came to landscape design. But I'm, I'm still, I'm, I mean, I'm fascinated in sustainable building practices. Uh, I, I spent two months in Slovakia learning about sustainable building. I've been on the different projects. So when I say, I, I, I give myself like lots of different titles. I can never really make up my mind because I'm really a avid and passionate learner and just want to learn as much as I can about how we can live on the, on the landscape and on, on this planet as sustainably and regeneratively as possible. Excellent. I'm intrigued to know how you found, uh, like your college courses. That must have been like quite. Well, what I, what I imagine is there was quite a lot of ideas that probably butted up against like the permaculture thinking uh, ways of doing things. Definitely. Um, I, yeah, I found it, it quite difficult, especially coming from um, growing up as being home educated. My parents' philosophy of education was one of allowing us um, kids to find our love for learning and find our interests and then to support us along that route. So they, they didn't actually ever force anything on me. They didn't tell me how to learn. They didn't tell me to do much, really. They allowed me to, to find what I was passionate about. Whereas in the academic, in most academic fields and education, um, it's very much telling the student or, or, or putting them in these boxes of what they can learn and what they can do. And I, I found that very difficult. I, I wanted to just like definitely didn't fit in that box very well, but I actually did quite well in academia. Yeah. And I ended up, um, I, I did college for three years and then I went on to study ethnobotany at, at, on the foundation degree, mm. which ethnobotany is the study of useful plants and human culture. So really looking at how, how we use plants and how that shapes um, who we are. And I, I, in that time, I was particularly interested in um, indigenous horticultural cultures, um, people who live with their surrounding environment and tend it rather than in agriculture. We, te- we often dominate the environment around us, whereas horticultural cultures, um, they, they actually tend to work with ecology to tend the wild. And then after spending two years studying ethnobotany, I went on to the Eden Project to study two years of landscape design, which I found landscape design was much more open to um, open to permaculture and open to allow me, allow me the flexibility to explore the things I really wanted to learn about because I found that, science is quite rigid 
Whereas when you go and study the arts, that's much more flexible for you to explore your ideas. And in this two years, the the study was really based on it was project based. So I, I was designing projects and then having tutor support through that. So I could choose what I wanted to. So, for example, for my um, for my dissertation, I did a study on how parks can be as beneficial to people in the environment as possible. So in that, I was looking at how they could bring in the community. So having a community garden with community space where people could come in and um, take ownership over a bed or work do workshops a community cafe, which I was looking at how to make that a very welcoming environment. Um, and then also looking at things like um, phytoremediation, taking the water from the surrounding roads and filtering them through the plant plantings in the, in the park, rather than what we'll pretend to do, as I'm sure you know, in so much of our built landscape is we we've had this engineering approach to water for quite some time, which is actually trying to deflect it off of the landscape as quickly as possible with this theory that it's going to stop flooding when actually it's just pushing the issue downstream and pushing the pollutants downstream, which actually it's the biology and the wetlands that um, slow that water down, filter out pollutants, and reduce downhill flooding. So in, in this park I was designing, I was looking at how we can yeah, create these beautiful um, long-term plantings, but they're also filtering out pollutants. Nice. I've been thinking about that quite a lot. Uh, where I live is in a valley, and there's a, a sort of track road which comes down the, the hill, uh, and it rained really heavily a couple of days ago. And I drove out and it was just a whole river flooding down. And there's all sort of erosion when it hits the um, the sort of tarmac bit at the bottom. And I was thinking, like, how, you know, what can I do? Where, where, can I dig a series of ponds and just divert water out of that that sort of stream that's coming down? Yeah. And like, what can I do to slow it down? And like be the be the beaver in the in the sort of beaverless part of the world. Exactly. Biomimicry. Yeah. Um and, and yeah, that's that's the interesting thing as well as so much of the time um, in the past, we've looked for these big engineering projects um, to to resolve some of these issues. Whereas I think there's a there's a lot of light coming on micro solutions, um, small scale solutions, which on the macro make a huge impact when scaled up. So like in, in water catchment and flood mitigation, it's actually far more. Um, effective to create lots of micro water catchment systems than it is to create large ones because all of them together is how the landscape has evolved over millions of years with such things as beavers slowing down the flow capturing any sediment capturing any pollutants and so going back to my discussion on universities I yeah so I was trying to shape my study to encompass permaculture, but without actually having the title of I'm, I'm a, um, I've got a degree in permaculture design. So looking at, yeah, so I did 
ethnobotany, which is the study of useful plants. And then I did landscape design. And so that when I, when I graduated, which was four years ago now, um, my ideas were was to create a landscape design and build company that specializes in creating multifunctional landscapes. And in that is because since, since I was a child and looking at a lot of the permaculture landscapes people were creating, is when you look close at them, they were in, incredible, the detail of functions and uh, regenerative practices involved. But so much of the time, they lack the beauty, the aesthetics and, and the wow factor in them so that whoever saw that landscape and they weren't already converted, already had the permaculture lens, they would see it as sort of a, a mess. So I, I, I really thought there was a missing opportunity there in that actually if we were creating these permacultural landscapes that produce food, um, capture and store water, um, filter pollutants, and look really beautiful, that will capture people's imagination through the beauty. And then once they look closely and you talk about the details, they then become inspired by the 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 aesthetic sustainability or regeneration. And this is what I found so much in my work is like people people really value a beautiful image of something. And and that's usually what captures their imagination. When I was when I was starting out on social media, I was sharing these really interesting um pictures of let's say edible forest gardens or some sort of regenerative practices and they wouldn't get many likes and then i remember i created a wildflower meadow and i took a picture and they almost they almost go viral people love it people share it and it's because of the aesthetics in it so i just thought that was such a key aspect of how we can use the arts to inspire people for a regenerative future yeah I think that's fantastic. And that's, that's, that feels like it's, it's sort of the landscape version of what I'm doing with, with building in that it's, it's almost like sneaking the good stuff in the back door. It's like I, I try and create buildings which don't look like that hobbit, you know, permaculture style, which, you know, a lot of people absolutely love, but a lot of people, I think they see it as a barrier. Like they can't, they can't get past that, that aesthetic. Uh, and so by creating like a, for me, a home that's quite conventional looking, uh, but made of these super like incredible natural materials. I can just say that's a home. By the way, it's doing all these incredible things. I've hooked you in. So yeah, I feel I feel like we're uh, we're approaching the the issue in the same way. Mm. Yeah. So now I've been for the last four years been running my landscape design and build company. Um. And yeah, it's, it's gone very well. I've, I've done some interesting projects and I've, I'm sort of coming to now mainly specializing in plantings because what I found is when you start a business, there's, there's a lot of, um, sort of influence to carry on building a business, offer, offer all of the services you can, employ people, carry on growing, get bigger and bigger. And what I've found is that, yeah, it's good for business, but does that cultivate a, 
good health, happiness or community for the, the people in the business. Most often I find it, it doesn't. And the pattern I've seen in so many people is that when they start becoming economically successful in business, quite often that sacrifices their happiness and their, their, their friendships, their, um, their health. And their morals sometimes. Exactly. Quite often, yeah, what is good for business isn't good for all of these other things. And, and it's, it's a big pressure in our culture. I, I constantly battle with myself feeling like I should be taking on more work, taking on bigger jobs, employing people. And it even comes up in your um, conversations a lot. Like I, what I find a lot when I'm talking to loved ones or friends, they say, oh, Sid, now you're doing so well. Surely you can take your hands off the tools. You can just manage people. And I'm, well... <laughs> I'm not sure that's going to make me that happy. I, I actually started this because I'm passionate about creating things. <laughs> and then, like what I think you said you experienced, is then you're not creating things. You're just managing people. Mm-hmm. Um, so what, what I'm trying to do now, and over the last two years, my business has done very well. So this summer, I'm taking three months off. And I, I'm touring around Italy, exploring wild landscapes, bike packing doing a bit of the van life and the idea is is hopefully it will knock my business back a bit <laughs> so that I don't have so much pressure and people expect that I'm, I'm not I'm not just a business I'm, I'm a human being and I, I need my time yeah I think that works well with the uh, the autoresponder idea <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah I, I think I do think I do think having an auto response always saying you're out in the landscape or out in the garden and you'll get back to in due course is is a, is a wise move and i think people are people's perception of business is changing and their values of what a business is because people have been sold this space of corporations for so long that people don't buy into that so much anymore they want to know the story and the individuals behind the business and and i think my, my take on that is because people are buying into the story behind the business and the actual face and individual, I think they're, they're now coming on to more the, the point that behind the business, it's just an individual. If they don't respond straight away, if they maybe start at 10 o'clock or whatever they do for their individual happiness is more acceptable. And, and I, what I do, because I'm not the quickest at responding, but I'm, I'm a, gardener i'm out in the landscape i'm i'm not a admin worker that's not my specialty so i I straight away when i when i start uh, the relationship with clients is i usually say to them look i might not respond straight away but if it's something important get back to me and i will i will respond and I, i feel like people are much more accepting to this now whereas a few years ago maybe if, if, if a business doesn't respond straight away, you will get very impatient and it's like, what are they doing? They're obviously not very professional. I think, yeah, there's definitely, but it seems like there's two sort of two tracks. There's like the, the mega conglomerate, uh, type businesses, which are, they're going completely the opposite way and they're, we're open all the time doing all of this. And then there's that sort of niche, like cottage industry type where, 
the people that like that really like to know the story. They like to know that they're dealing with real humans, people that are knowledgeable and excited about the thing rather than, you know, just, just paying their wage. Definitely. And that's the sort of clients I, I, <laughs> I take on. Yeah. Well, that's, that's an interesting question then. I want to know like what, what sort of people your, your clients are. So uh, my sort of clients are people who really want to do something quite radical with their landscape and they want to make a difference. They want, they want to put their money into their landscape around them to increase their sustainability and to ha- have a bit of an impact because gardens are a bit overlooked and people think that by growing some of their own food in their garden that it's not going to have a huge impact on, let's say, climate change or environmental pollution or all of these big um big big words which actually it can have a huge impact just by growing a small amount of your own food in your garden is a radical act because of the huge chain of um negative impacts which food causes because when when, even if you were to grow a small amount of vegetables in your garden that's cutting out the the cultivation in somewhere like Kenya or some country thousands of miles away where they, they're using their resources to cultivate food, which then it needs to be packaged, transported, sprayed with hormones to keep its shelf life, then usually unwrapped, packaged again, transported to a supermarket. Then you, tra- you travel to that supermarket, buy the food, travel home, unwrap it, cook it, and all of this process, which that means that even a small amount of food has a huge impact. And so so people quite often think, oh, by putting in, let's say, a rainwater catchment system in my garden, that's not going to have that much impact. Whereas actually, when you're talking about the landscape industry, which is a huge industry with a, a massive coverage and impact, if people are doing these really regenerative practices like what we got onto earlier about the micro water catchment, it can have such an influence on the environment and culture. And that's really where my, my work comes in, in it, is that in, in the landscape industry, unfortunately, people, most of the people building landscapes are, um, I will say it, builders. <laughs> but because, but actually when you, when you're creating a landscape, it's not just about the, the 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 physical materials, but it's also about the biology, the ecology, the the hydrology. It, it it encompasses so much that unfortunately, most of the landscapers throughout the UK and I'm sure throughout the world are not trained enough to um, to actually implement regenerative practices. Whereas a lot of them are, it can be quite simple if if you, but it, it just takes the initial research, and that's why a lot of what I'm trying to do now with my online presence is to inspire people to make the change, because things like a rain garden isn't that complicated to implement, but unless you put the time in to do the research, you might not even hear about it. So tell, like, tell me what what is a rain garden? So. So, so much of the time when people are constructing their houses, the the water from the roof is not utilised on site. 
is usually either sent away in, and sometimes even into the sewage works or what I what I've regularly seen is the water coming down the downspout and straight into the soil at the foundations of the house which I, I, you, you might be in a better position to advise on this but from my understanding over the years this can actually destabilize the foundations and cause issues with damp because you, you think uh, in, in a lot of the parts of the UK, it, there is around a metre a year of rainfall. I mean, one, say, 60, what's, what's the square meterage of an average roof? We'll be back after a quick break. Hey there, I'm Mick from the Mick and Pat Show. That's right, and I'm Pat. Looking for a podcast that's like catching up with old friends? Well, you're in luck. We're here to bring you weekly doses of lifestyle commentary, discuss culture and politics, and top it off with the occasional beer and film reviews. But it's not just about us. We're a community. Our listeners are our kin, and we let you all have a say in what we discuss. So saddle up and join the conversation at The Mick and Pat Show. You can check out our website or find us wherever you get your podcasts. I don't know, maybe sort of 70, 80 square meters. 70, 80 square meters, yeah, yeah. So even sometimes some of the houses I work on, half of the roof is, say, 60 square meters. Mm. And so, so, so yeah, let's, let's say 100 square meters. So that means uh, every year there could be 100,000 litres coming off of your roof. That's, that's a lot of water. Uh, and, and quite often that, might, that can come down really quickly in a big downpour which then sends that water off of, off of your site into the, the surrounding landscape and, and potentially causing downhill flooding. That could be picking up sediment on its route, pollutants going straight into rivers, causing um, eutrophication and pollution in the rivers, which eutrophication is a buildup of nutrients in waterways which then causes algae blooms and can quite often kill off a lot of the life. And so this can be quite a serious issue of all of this water running off of our landscape, especially when you consider how built up the UK is. It's hard to look at a view without seeing houses. And, and that means that we've got millions of houses all sending the water off of their site quickly. Whereas actually, when you have a garden space, you can soak that water into your landscape, water your plants and catch any sediment before it runs off of your landscape. So what a rain garden is, is it's taking the, the water from your roof going down your um, gutters and capturing it in a depression. So, so you pretty much dig a large hole around a foot deep and and you divert any of the water coming off the roof into that catchment system and then if if you have large amounts of water coming off the roof if you've got a big house and you've got a small space you can also create a bit of a french drain in that and then you plant sort of marginal plants so at this this rain garden then in the summer becomes quite dry and in the winter, it becomes wet. So this variety of um, conditions quite often enables a um, planting, a quite interesting and diverse sort of bog 
dry habitat planting, which these these habitats have been lost throughout our landscape in the UK because we well we for one we don't have beavers anymore. That's that was long long gone. And 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 two, most of our landscape we drain and we divert the water off rapidly. So that means that we've got dry landscapes and we don't have all of these micro water catchments. Whereas these micro water catchments are incredibly important for wildlife. So that means that just by we're, we're taking a problem of flooding, eutrophication and pollution and um, wastewater treatment and we're capturing that on our site filtering it watering plants we could even be producing food as well because there's no reason these these rain gardens on our site can't be planted with edible plants things like um persicaria bistorta a great perennial vegetable and salad crop and that actually thrives in these wet and dry conditions and then so we're, we're supporting plants and ourselves from what is could, could be a serious issue. Fantastic. Um, I feel like we got well off uh, <laughs> a route then, but I can't remember where we, we'd gone before I asked you the question on rain gardens. Well, I mean, one of the things I, I definitely want to ask you about is uh, edible ecosystems. And I'm particularly excited by your edible uh, meadow. Can you uh, tell us what that's that's all about? Yeah, so where I, I, I hinted earlier that I, I grew up on a small holding, and well, I didn't hint. I did tell a bit of a story about it. And on that small holding, we had an edible forest garden, which an edible forest garden is. It takes inspiration and methods <laughs> from indigenous cultures, particularly in tropical climates where they would practice a slash-and-burn agriculture, where they would slash parts of the rainforest down, burn the material, and then they would transplant the desirable plants they want, what produce food, medicine, fiber, and they would plant those in a forest-type planting with small trees, shrubs, perennials, and then they would allow that to grow up and as that matures, they then created a edible forest garden, which mimics the structure and habits of a woodland, which so much of the cultivation we do today is fighting against um, plant ecology in that we, so in, in our, a lot of our food systems, we grow annuals, which annuals are, at the start of succession so they they are very early on like pioneers of broken ground but because it's at the start of a succession of ecology and I'm a little bit off piece but i can't explain this without saying what succession is is from from when ground is disturbed it is then going along a route of succession trying to get to woodland and in that succession there's different things that create a disturbance to keep it at that level of succession so we have at the start we have disturbed ground and then we have annuals coming in then we have perennials and grasses 
and small shrubs. And as it goes on, it gets to woodland. And then quite often there's a disturbance that brings it back to either grassland or um, meadow, oh, sorry, meadow or annuals. And that, that might be like a, a forest fire or, or something like that, some sort of big event that happens naturally sort of periodically. Yeah. Landslides or quite most of it was likely to happen from large herbivores at once upon a time elephants and things uh-huh. elephants are very good at bringing down trees and creating new um grasslands and then there, there has to be a disturbance to keep it at that level usually so that disturbance might be environmental it might be the nutrients in the soil or lack of water or it could be from disturbance people herbivores grazing and much of our agriculture is based on very early succession using annuals and pioneers. So to keep it right at the start of succession, we have to put a lot of energy in to fight any other plants, which are trying to get to uh, uh, further down the successional stages. And not only this, but we usually cultivate in monocultures, a single plant growing in a given area. That's not how, um, that's not how plants have evolved. Plants are social beings and they grow together in close-knit communities. So since I was a child, I, I grew up with an edible forest garden, an edible garden that mimics the structure and habits of a forest. And since then, I've been completely inspired by edible forest gardening and permaculture. But and then when I went to university, I started learning about the um, the academic subject of design plant communities and what they're really doing at universities, and particularly at like Sheffield University. They are they're leading the way with how we can design plantings which either uh, which are ecologically diverse beautiful and function like a wild plant community and they're really leading the way with their their research into that whereas what I found was permaculture and edible forest garden weren't really utilizing a lot of this very new science and these new findings and I was looking at these these, these ecological plantings that they were creating, which were incredibly beautiful. They were um, ecologically diverse, low maintenance. But for me, I, I saw an opportunity in that to add in that permaculture twist and to, to create these plantings, but also use edible and useful plants from around the world. So that, that's been developing. Now what I'm doing is rather like a lot, there's been quite a lot of, input into edible forest gardens now but i'm my research i'm interested in edible ecosystems so edible meadows edible bogs edible woodlands scrublands and over the last five years i've been particularly focused on edible meadows because what we find is many of the um many of the even many of the horticultural like perennials we use in our ornamental gardens 
they're lots of them have edible uses. But yeah, it might be that we need to learn how to use them. But what I've been doing is I've been taking all of these beautiful and edible plants from around the world, which are found in um, wild flower meadows, and then combining them together to create a seed mix that we can scatter to create a beautiful biodiverse meadow with abundance of different edible crops and that's low maintenance because most meadows you the, the, the intention is is you do one or multiple cutbacks a year and then you do some weeding so the last over the last two years i've been experimenting with it and combining like 30 different edible species having really beautiful garden plantings from it that are low maintenance and Last summer, I harvested a salad of like 18 different species from an edible meadow. Fantastic. So, yeah, the, the research is, is, is going well. Nice. Um, I mean, that sounds utterly fantastic. I, I live in a uh, sort of in this little uh, clearing and I've been noticing how, you know, if I, if I scythe, then I don't get any of the, you know, the, the nice flowers. I don't get any of the, the sort of pollinators coming in. And then next to that, I'm growing my veg garden and to, to think that I could just, you know, I could add in a, an edible meadow and, and have that, you know, be part of my veg garden. What I found is it does require quite a lot of skill. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I, and I'm, I'm being realistic about this because initially I had these quite utopian, utopian ideas that we could be covering all of our landscape with these, and in reality, it takes quite a lot of skill and uh, like botanical knowledge to know what to use. Mm-hmm. So I've been creating these meadows now for a couple of years. And when most people look at them, well, it's quite overwhelming having like 30 different types of edible plants all intermingled together. And, in, and actually what you, you even need to be a avid like chef and plant or food enthusiast. Or it just takes a long time to learn plant by plant. But in this approach, it's like foraging. And there's this, even in our, our native species, when you look at a wildflower meadow, there are so many different edible and useful plants that are incredibly nutritious and good crops if you know how to cook with them. And the more my research develops is I've realized that Wildflower meadows have been an intrinsic part of our culture here in the UK for like thousands of years. We, we, we've been hard, wild harvesting the, the plants. We've been grazing. We've been using the, the plants from meadows for um, medicine and crafts and dye. And lots of this has been forgotten. With my research, what I've found is there's a culture in Vancouver, Canada, that for thousands of years, they have been cultivating wildflower meadows for camassia bulbs. And camassia bulbs are a high starch um, bulb that can be used much like a potato after a, a longer cooking. And this was actually a staple crop for them. And when you look at these camassia meadows, they're incredibly beautiful. And what, what I found is because 
edible forest gardening and sort of tending woodlands for our sustenance is quite a well-researched and um, documented practice from indigenous cultures around the world. Whereas edible meadows and cultivating wildflower meadows isn't very much documented. And I believe a part of that is about the time scales involved, because if you leave a wildflower meadow without the disturbance, it turns to woodland quite quickly. If you leave a woodland without disturbance, it can go on for hundreds of years. And so I believe that many of the practices of cultivating wildflower meadows for our sustenance have been lost through the generations. And I really want to revive that because I think there's a lot of potential in cultivating these diverse herbaceous vegetations for our food and medicine. Great. I I want to go on your seed mix. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've, I've had a lot of people contacting me, but it's not quite ready for um, distribution. Great. So I'm, I'm still researching it and it's quite a complicated thing. But I do offer design and consultancy. So as long as it's going to be like ongoing support, because if, if I just sell someone a seed mix, then it can be if, if it doesn't go well um, and, and that they don't know how to manage it, it can then I'm sort of liable. Yeah. Whereas if it's a consultancy work and I'm working with them to tend it, but that's 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 a, that's an offering I do offer because then we can work together to to resolve any issues. And the thing is with wildflower meadows is they can, in the first few years, if you don't jump in, if there's a problem early on, then it can be sort of the failure of the whole um, composition. Yeah, nice. I've, I've got a similar thing going on with uh, earth floors at the moment. People are asking me to, to give them a, a pre-packaged mix and it's like, well, you know, if that fails in some way because of your installation, you're going to say it's my product. Uh, I don't even want to get into that. Um, but anyway, that's an aside. Um, so the meadows thing, I think, is really interesting. So I, I'm kind of I've seen a few things recently, like of people buying up fields and turning them into meadows. And then like this whole thing about not mowing motorway verges and letting them kind of uh you know thrive a bit more well first of all when did we sort of lose this sort of the meadows and what do you think's like bringing it back well it's only we, we mainly lost it over the last hundred years as um agriculture has become very mechanized and people have moved off of the landscape because now our agriculture is so successful based on fossil fuels and large machinery that, uh, and also um, synthetic fertilizers, you can get multiple crops a year from your field of grass. And, and then they, they seed it with really vigorous grasses, usually use fertilizers, which then that actually pushes out the wildflowers. Wildflowers like quite hard conditions and they they tend to be pushed out in these higher nutrient um, systems because grass takes the nutrients and is very vigorous and it pushes out the sensitive wildflowers. But also that regime of cutting like four times a year or three times a year, that a lot of wildflowers can't do their life cycle and go to seed. 
And what was the other question, sorry? Uh, it was just about, uh, I guess, I mean, I, I think the answer is pretty obvious, but why Why do you think there's a resurgence? In uh, it? Yeah, I've I, I definitely seen, because I've been sort of involved in sustainability and regenerative practices for quite a few years now, since I was a kid, really. And over the last about three to four years, I've really seen a, a shift in people's thinking. Now, almost anyone I tell um, about what I do has, is inspired by it and is interested. Whereas you go back like four years ago and it was, it was, it was more niche. People who were, weren't as interested as they are now to this, this surge of people being interested in environment and, um, sustainability. And particularly, like I was saying earlier about wildflowers, is, is that aesthetics. When people see wildflowers, it inspires them and they go, oh, wow, they're so beautiful. And it's really good for wildlife. And it's really good for mental health because flowers improve your happiness and, and feelings. So I think it's, I think it's just this, this transitional shift in, in thinking at the moment. And I, I'm hoping it's carry on getting bigger and bigger. Interesting as well, actually, I wouldn't mind just touching on some of the um, like building methods as well, what I've been implementing. Yeah, please. And because I, I find I find sustainable building incredibly fascinating, and but I do struggle professionally to offer it because it's it's such craftsmanship, and it takes so much thinking and planning, and, and a lot of that doesn't is it's hard to fit that into a business model, because when someone sees something bespoke and and creative, it's like how do you put a, a figure on that? How do you put a figure on how much planning you're going to be putting into that? How do you put a figure on how much thinking you're going to be doing for weeks on end, thinking about how it's going to work? Because it's very easy in business just to fit everything into square boxes and modulize it and simplify it. But when you're talking about, like, for example, one of the, um, one of the pay, like, paths I did, I created, I got Cornish slate. And, and I cut it into small strips and then I bedded it in with a soil cement. So I, I was, I was, I was trying to minimize, um, any use of external materials. So, I mean, soil, it, I had it on site from the excavation of the path. So and then mixing that one to six, um, cement to soil. I then binded all of the stone together with that and it's worked really well. And what I then did was um, covered all of the joints in a, a moss solution so that moss would grow in the cracks on this um, sort of very strong soil cement. What is it called? Soil creep. That's what it's coined as. Uh, but I'd, I'd be interested in and looking more into using lime. As yeah well, well that was soil. that was going to be my uh my comment yeah. was that lime and uh and subsoil have a really like they really work well together like they sort of bring out the best in each other um, um my understanding is that soil or sort of earth and cement they actually kind of don't don't play so well together but yeah i mean that if you can switch out and put lime in then you've got a recyclable material uh, that's you know capturing carbon well it's capturing its its own carbon in in its creation um yeah that would that would be a the next step 
definitely and and that's the thing is what like I, I'm, I'm trying to minimize the like carbon input of my landscapes and so much of the landscape industry just covers landscapes in cement and well, the building industry as well and it mm-hmm. is the in, i remember reading something saying that if cement was a country it would have the highest energy use out of all countries on the planet <laughs> and so that when you and, and also the problem is with it is it's it's quite a dirty business in their lobbying of, of governments to create huge concrete works, um, huge construction works, what use phenomenal amounts of energy and are quite often completely unnecessary. So it's not it's not an industry I want to like HS two. Yeah, like HS two, and and so on. What I'm practicing now a lot is actually creating paving on a flexible base of like grit. But I'd be very, I'd be very interested in using lime and soil. But my only concern is it getting wet. Yeah, but so I guess my my next question is about um, just sort of trends, and I guess influencing trends. Like we're we seem to be in this stage at the moment where uh, neat and tidy is you know that's that's the aesthetic that people want from their outside spaces, whether that's parks or their gardens. Um, and how we can like change that to be, you know, this sort of more, not scruffy, but yeah, real things that are growing, letting them grow and, you know, sort of introducing like real diversity rather than like the sort of barren, barren grassland. How do you think we can do that? Yeah, it's, it's an interesting one that, and I, I think that's where design comes in so, so beautifully is that then if, if we were to design spaces intentionally to be regenerative and sustainable, but to apply aesthetic design theory so they um, appeal to to diverse range of people. So doing things, for example, like if, if you have a very wild space or if you have a very rustic design in a building or construction, to have an orderly frame around it. So, so in the landscape, an example of that is having a wildflower meadow with a neat cut lawn or path next to it. And that quickly opens that up for a wide range of people to be inspired by it and to, to find it beautiful. And this is this is a very it's an interesting area as well, that because as a designer, what I've observed is once again there's this like um, spectrum. Of, of people and on one end there's people who like very ecological and wild places and that's me i mean if, if people saw my garden they would be like see what's going on here you're <laughs> multi-award wing landscape designer you've got a garden full of weeds what's going on here Sid? this is ridiculous um so on one end you have me who likes really <laughs> wild and un- untamely gardens and then on the other end you have um, someone who likes their manicured outdoor space, which brings the indoors outdoors, and they hoover their lawn because it's plastic. Um, <laughs> and so you have this spectrum. And, and for me, it's 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 interesting working with a wide um, range of people and assessing right from the start where they are on that spectrum. So then you can tie in the diversity and the um, the wild as much as you can 
Um, so, for example, I, I made a, I created a wildflower meadow for a client. And in the winter, wildflower meadows can look quite messy. And I always try to encourage people to keep the dead material for as long as possible. So I put in some evergreen and quite contrasting colours so that they could accept that in the winter, accept the, the messiness more. And, and that, that's, that's really how I see design coming into uh, and promoting sustainability so beautifully, design and art. Oh, mate, yeah, perfect. Um, I wanted to say, uh, well, I want you to tell us about your, uh, your bike for uh, for getting to work <laughs> yeah yeah so for quite a few years now i've been really struggling with my trans means of transport because i i practice sustainability in, in all parts of my life as much as i can and it's what i'm passionate about but yet doing like ten thousand miles a year in my band just didn't sit right with me and living down in cornwall i can't the logistics of having an electric van just don't, doesn't work, just doesn't doesn't add up, um, and, and and the cost of it, and and this idea of me living cheaper. Um, so I, I've been really passionate in following the um, cycling gardeners sort of movement, where gardeners run their gardening business from a bike, and I, I've been, yeah, just you know how you do when you get these ideas, you just get a bit obsessed with looking into them and in the spring with with covid and everything i decided uh, that i was getting an electric bike and i bought a electric cargo bike um which once again that that the way i saw it is it puts a limiter on an aspect of my business because when you've got a van it's very easy to say oh yeah i'll take on that job an hour's drive away Ah, uh, yeah, I'll take on that job, which isn't isn't something I usually do, and I'll buy new big tools. It's very easy for every time you go to each job to carry your whole tool collection with you because it's subsidised by fossil fuels. But when when you then get an electric bike, and over the last um, since since the spring, really, or a bit, yeah, a bit, really a bit before spring, late winter, I've had this electric bike, which has put a limiter on how far the clients are away from me that I take on. And it's meant I've had a complete reassessment of my tool collection. And I'm, I'm, I'm being much more conscious about what it is I take with me. What am I, what am I actually doing that day? What tools am I actually going to need? Just taking those tools. And as soon as you get on the bike, you realize, wow, I had that shovel and it's like three and a half kilos. And it was, it was complete solid steel, <laughs> and and then, and then as soon as you 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 get on the bike, you realise that all of those tools you were carrying around, which are super heavy, actually, yeah, they they they, they weren't even necessary. But it's I haven't like I haven't completely converted yet because my business is still based on the model of um, vehicles. But it is, it's becoming a large part of my business. And going forward, I'm going to carry on transitioning. But it would have been crazy for me just to say, right, I'm, I'm now just a bicycle, just going to run my business from a bicycle. 
because it would have meant that I wouldn't have been able to carry on so many of the jobs. But I mean, when you when you go to work on a on a bicycle, it's a beautiful start to the day. And and, and going back to this whole thing of being intentional, what I, what I find is I might be running late with with the van. I'm, I'm running late, and I, I quickly jump in the van, and I might drive faster to get to work. And then I get to work and I'm still feeling like I'm driving fast and rushed. Whereas when I'm on the bike, I'm, I'm running late. I'm in a rush. I get on the bike, I start cycling. And then I forget about that. And I'm looking at the view. I'm stopping to look like look at some plants in the hedgerow. I get to work and I'm super peaceful. <laughs> and what that's also another aspect of that is it's I, I've gone down to six hour days because I want an hour before work and an hour after work to, for transport in my vehicle. And, and the thing is with physical work is anyone who does more like eight or more hours doing a physical job is damaging their body. You can't sustain that for long periods of time. You are going to damage yourself. And I've taken that on board now and now six hour days. Beautiful. Absolutely beautiful. <laughs> You're, you're an absolute inspiration, but <laughs> how, how can you be so, uh, so onto this so soon? Uh, I've, yeah, I've, I've gone through the, the destroying myself bit and now I'm starting to like, oh yeah, this is how we, we should work. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, so, all right, I've got one last, one last question for you, uh, cause we are overrunning a little bit, but, um, just what what do you think people can do to like say if someone's got a little balcony or they've got a little garden or you know what what do you think the thing with like the biggest impact they could do for their little space get some fruit bushes yeah get some a blueberry blackcurrants um elderberry because so many of the berry bushes are low input high impact in that you you plant a a, a let's say a black currant and that carries on growing from year to year takes very little management and it produces super nutritional um berries and um, i mean there's, there's a whole discussion in itself in our food system and the, the incredibly poor quality of almost all of the vegetables we consume from shops grown on nutrient poor soil um, bread to be low well bread to be aesthetically pleasing in high shelf life which sacrifices the nutrients and so actually by growing even a small quantity of um, berries in a um, non-cultivated sort of indigenous soil having those those berries each year is um, yeah it's, it's incredible for your health i remember when i was a teenager my mum had about well we had about six um, black currant bushes in our garden in the uk um this is i, I grew up in a small holding hand with my mum in in like a, a cottage in De- devon and at my mum's place we had about yeah about six black currant bushes, and each year they would produce so many berries that I would make juice out of them, and that's your medicine. 
that 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 is that 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 boosts your immune system ready for say the winter months so that you can fight any pathogens or viruses so even if you've got a small space if you were to grow a currant bush or a blueberry once a year you can have a really incredible harvest but the 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 beautiful thing about most um currant or or fruit bushes is most of them take from cutting incredibly easy so if you take a pencil sized cutting of a black currant bush and you stick it in a pot that will probably about 70 or 80 percent of them will grow then you can give that to a friend or, or or family member to inspire them to do some growing and this even just um, growing one plant for food creates that connection with the natural world, which changes your mindset. Um, and it might be off of a bit of a tangent here, but so in, in the culture we live in today, most of people get upset when a famous person they perceive to know dies. Even though they've never met them, they get very upset. Whereas if, if a native plant around them becomes extinct, they usually don't know. They don't care, really, if they, if they do know. And so what that means is we are disconnected from the plants and the environment around us. Whereas if you grow, let's say you, you grew up with an apple tree in your garden and you are super fond of this apple tree and the apples it produced. And when you were in your 30s, apples became extinct you would care about that and and not only that but from that that experience as a kid caring about and getting getting food from that plant that actually has a huge impact on how you perceive the environment around you and plants and it makes you care more about the systems we depend on the natural systems we depend on for our lifeline so yeah that (laughs) in a nutshell (laughs) that's that's why i would recommend someone to grow (laughs) grow some food in their small space (laughs) hey i'm ryan reynolds recently i asked mint mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation they said yes and then when i asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts they said what the f*** are you talking about you insane hollywood ass so to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at Burrow.com slash ACAST. That's Burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Brilliant. All right, Sid. Well, I mean, that is absolutely fantastic. Is there anything you want to end with? Um, I think one of, one of the things I go by in life is think it, believe it, and it will be. Think something, imagine it, 
believe in, in yourself and that thing and generally it will become the truth nice thanks sid that was brilliant i really really enjoyed that chat i think the parallels i felt in the way he's approaching sustainability into garden design and the way i'm approaching it into building is yeah they're strong strong parallels so yes links to sid's website and social media are in the show notes i should also say there's bonus audio uh, on the patreon uh, patreon.com forward slash building sustainability Uh, Currently, it stands at eight and a half hours of bonus audio from uh, the interviews so far. Get involved with that. Uh, If you've enjoyed this episode, please do share and tag Building Sustainability Podcast or Jeffrey the Natural Builder. As always, uh, well, thank you very much for listening. and Thank you to everyone who gets in touch. I really love hearing from you. Yeah, it's so nice to to know that uh, this podcast is making some sort of positive impact it is it's a strange thing to just be talking into a microphone and not to real people uh so yes the feedback is greatly received thank you uh, the next episode is coming soon to make up for the one i missed i think that's all i've got to say thank you for listening big love to you see you soon why don't more infant formula companies use organic grass-fed whole milk instead of skim Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quinn's. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.